thinking about some of the things that Pastor Mark was saying in his sermon today. And I truly hope uh, that I don't come off like an Al Mohler tonight uh, in any way, shape, or form. Because <laughs> um, sometimes I, I think that I can say certain things that make all kinds of sense to me, but sometimes people look at me and they're like, I don't understand anything you're saying. So, um, so tonight, the um, name of the sermon, uh, the, the passage up here on the screen is uh, A Prisoner's Prayer That You Would Know. And uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 1. If you're not already there, you can open up. We'll be there and it'll, it'll be a, a couple of minutes or so until we get there. Before we get started, though, I want to I ask you guys a question. Is anybody familiar with the TV show? Uh, it's been around for a while, probably in the mid-90s or so. It's called The Antique Roadshow. Anybody familiar with that? Yeah? How many of you have all seen that before? Okay, good. All right. I like that show. It's like a really good show. And uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's a show where people uh, who cleaned out their attics or have a family heirloom of some sort that's been handed down to them, uh, and they would, uh, they would come to the Antique Roadshow because it's a traveling tour type of show, and they would bring their heirloom, they would bring their antique that they have, something that would be picked up in a yard sale, and they would bring it there for a professional antique appraiser to provide any insights that they might have for this personal treasure of theirs and, and also to find out what its true monetary value is. Now, most of the time, the sentimental value of whatever that item may be uh, is actually greater and, uh, than what the actual monetary value is. But every once in a while, there's, there's, a, there's a surprise on that show. For instance, uh, there was a show in uh, 2017, a few years back now, that featured a young lady who was uh, getting ready to head off to college. And she was packing up a, a beautiful frame print of some Native American Indians that were traversing this rugged mountain pass that she was told was worth between $200 and $250. She had inherited it from her grandmother, and she was very fond of it, so she planned on packing it up and, and taking it with her to college and hanging it in her dorm room. While she was packing it up, she noticed this, this little mosquito that was underneath the glass of the frame. So she took it outside, and when she opened it outside, she realized that it was, it was likely an actual painting and not just a nice print like she had thought it to be. So she decided that she would go to the Antique Roadshow, since it was nearby where she was at in Pennsylvania, and see if she could find out what it was actually worth, and was it worth more than what she had been told it was. So as it turns out, the Roadshow appraiser actually knew quite a bit about this particular painting, and the painter who she quickly identified as a French-born American painter by the name of Henry Francois Farney. Anybody heard of him before? Henry Farney? Hmm. Well, Farney was known for paintings of Native Americans that he did from the mid to late 1800s. In 1899, he did a, uh, he did a painting of Sitting Bull in full warrior regalia. And uh, it's, it's actually kind of famous. Well, as the appraiser finished up describing the details of the painting and its creator, it was time to let this young lady know what the actual auction value was of the painting. Needless to say, when the appraiser told her, she was absolutely floored, and she had tears in her eyes, tears of joy, actually, because the painting was actually worth at auction, not between $200 and $250, but between two dollars and $300,000. Now, 
I know our son, Caleb, who's out here, he wants to believe that every Star Wars figure that he has is a priceless collector's item. And his brother Isaac wants to believe every rock he picks up in the parking lot and stuffs in his pockets is a precious gemstone. However, sometimes people discover a personal treasure that they have a fondness for is far more valuable than they ever realized. Whether it's a painting or a a favorite baseball card from childhood or an old stained glass lamp that you picked up in a yard sale a few years ago. But there are some things that all those, and I say all those who belong to Christ in every age, possess. That are not always realized how valuable they truly are. A wealth of riches for believers to leverage that are too often overlooked and are far more valuable than anything else we could possess or that we could ever hope to possess in the entire world. As much pleasure that this young lady experienced in discovering the actual value of her treasured painting that she received from her grandmother, there's a far greater expectation of joy to be had in the hearts of those who come to understand the exceedingly great value found within the faith we would have in Christ and all that comes with it. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul prays for, for the believers in Ephesus to come to understand as we consider a passage from his letter that contains that prayer. So if you have your Bibles with you, or your phones, or your tablets, open up to Ephesians 1, 15 and 23, and will you stand with me as we read God's Word tonight? Starting verse 15. For this reason I too have, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him, so that you the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Praise be to God for the reading of his word. Be seated. So here, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Ephesians from Rome where he was imprisoned for the gospel sometime between 61 and 63 A.D. However, beyond any physical shackles that may have had Paul bound up at that time, his prayers betray the reality of hope, a confidence as belonging to Christ, and spiritual power that all believers have access to through Christ. That is, Paul's shared prayers aren't anything that one might expect from a man that's imprisoned or in his position. 
While accounts, Paul should be a broken shell of a man after all that he suffered in the course of his ministry up to this point, and not least of all now being imprisoned in Rome with his own life on the line. However, Paul prays here in the light of the immeasurable wealth of spiritual blessing that he has just been writing about in the verses prior to the passage that we just read. That is, he prays in the light of God's purposes in Christ toward those that are his. He prays in the light of the blessing of being among those chosen for salvation in Christ before the foundations of the world. He prays in the light of sonship given to all believers in Christ, redeemed from all of their sins. He also prays in the light of hearts being enlightened to know the truth of Christ. All of this Paul shares in common with those he writes to and is the reason in verses 15 and 16 that drives Paul to grateful praise and prayer for the believers. Now there's a challenge in that though for us tonight, even though we haven't even gotten to the meat of the matter yet. And that is to consider that the things that drive all of our our prayers are often varied. But I wonder... How often of our prayers, or how often are our prayers driven by gratitude and praise? And as well as the urgent desire for not just ourselves, but for the hearts of others to likewise flourish in all that God has for them in Christ even today. What is the content and the driving force behind your prayers? Well, with that, there are three immeasurably valuable things God desires every believer to know through Paul's prayer here that will serve to strengthen and progressively sanctify them, spiritually refining those who belong to Christ more and more. And these are the hope of our calling, the riches of His inheritance in the saints, and the greatness of His power toward us. Now, as we get started here, there's a point in addition to these that I haven't listed. And that is how clearly God's sovereignty seasons throughout Paul's letter as a source for all things that are available in Christ. Not least of all, as it applies to the gift of salvation, from which the other three things emerge that would serve our needs to be strengthened and spiritually refined in Christ. And it's with God's sovereignty in mind that Paul clearly recognized that it's not himself who can make others to know. It's not himself that can make others to understand these things. But it's squarely in the hands of God to do so, sovereignly so. This Paul prays as he does in verses 17 and 18, asking this of God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of Him. Now, bear with me as I go just a little bit academic mode here for just a minute. Because this is a very interesting verse as translators are split on how best to render it. The question is who or what Paul is asking to be given here that brings wisdom and revelation. Is he asking for the Spirit, the Spirit, capital S, as it's rendered in the Legacy Standard Bible? Or is he asking for a Spirit, a Spirit, little s, as it's rendered in 
the New American Standard Bible. Well, most notable scholars agree that since Paul affirms that these believers have already received the Holy Spirit in verse 14, prior to our passage, what he's praying for here then is a unique spirit of wisdom and revelation, as in a godly disposition of increasing intimate knowledge of God that's gained through spiritual understanding and insight that only those in Christ are able to receive. Make note of that. Make note of that. Only those in Christ are able to receive. And with that, it's my opinion, back on the academic side again, that this unique understanding and insight given to Christians alone is best rendered in the King James Version and the New King James Version, where they render it as such, the Spirit, the, little s, Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. As such, there is no confusion, and Paul's words do not discount the fact that one cannot obtain such a unique spirit or character of understanding and insight of the riches in Christ apart from the necessary working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that is already present in the hearts of those that belong to Christ. If you're not in Christ tonight, you can't know. You can't know. Thus Paul, unable to impart it himself, he prays for such a disposition of wisdom and revelation to be given to them. Those whose hearts had already been enlightened to see the truth of salvation alone in Christ. Likewise, it should be an adopted prayer for us as well who depend upon God's sovereign grace to reveal the truth of all that is available for us in the full knowledge of God in Christ. And as such, Paul first prays for believers to know what is the hope of his calling in the middle of verse 18. And that's our first listed point. Now, when we talk about hope, it's important to define the term because when we talk about hope in just the general sense of the word, hope is a desire for good outcomes in which there's no true guarantee. And friends, that's not the precious hope that comes with a promise and an assurance that's found only in saving faith. Now, it's not to say there's anything wrong, per se, with having some unassured general hopes. For instance, you may hope that the promotion you've been waiting on at work comes through soon. Or you may hope that the economy will improve in case that promotion doesn't come through. Don't hold your breath on the economy. But there is something wrong when these types of hopes are the primary hope that we find ourselves depending upon in our lives. Because hope without assurance is truly nothing more than a house of cards that will ultimately collapse with disappointment and leave those who depend upon such to be left wanting. At least, at least not, and least of all, wanting for eternity. Let me give you a, an illustration. 
Now, I've never been a big follower of sports, even though I've enjoyed watching uh, some sports games once in a while. I've been to some games, some basketball games, football games, baseball games, things like that. And, uh, but there's one occasion that really sits in the forefront of my mind. Uh, it happened in 2005. And this occasion really made me grateful that I never became a diehard fan of sports. Such a fan that my mood or attitude hung on the outcome of sporting events. Now, many of you know that I served with the Army Parachute Team. I was with the Golden Knights for a number of years while I was still in the Army. Well, uh, it was after I had left the Knights, after I had left that assignment, and uh, this was in the year before I retired, 2005, and at this point in time, I was a team leader for a very for a smaller team that was actually posted on Fort Benning, Georgia, and it was called the Silver Wings. And it was during this time that the Wings were sponsored to jump into the Georgia Bulldogs versus Auburn Tigers football game that year. Now, many of you that might follow college sports and college football, you know already that Georgia and Auburn are huge rival teams. I mean, when the students would show up at these games where the two rivals were playing, Georgia was kind of the uppity team, and they'd all come in tuxedos and, like, like uh, evening gowns. And then the Auburn fans, they would dress like Auburn. <laughs> now, I was pretty excited about this game, not because I was going to the game itself. I mean, I, I, I was not not looking forward to that, but it was going to be the first time that any team had ever jumped into the Georgia Stadium. And so there were some challenges that went along with that. But I remember the crowd size was absolutely enormous. There was close to 100,000 people packing the stands that night. That's a lot of people. After the jump, our team was invited to watch the game near the Georgia sideline since their ROTC program was the one that had sponsored us. Now, the Georgia fans, they were extremely high in their spirits the whole game, and especially in the final quarter where the Bulldogs were up in the final minutes of that quarter, and the win was expected. The excited noise that came from the Georgia side was absolutely through the roof. However, Auburn was down by only two points with only seconds left in the game, and they had nothing to lose. So they made a field goal attempt, and it paid off in the last six seconds of the game. Final score, 30-31, Auburn. You want to talk about thousands of die-hard Georgia fans' hopes suddenly being ripped to shreds? There were fans in tears like they had just lost somebody dear to them. I'll never forget feeling the sudden palpable tension that was in the air of so many downcast people that night due to the outcome of a football game as their house of cards hope crumbled around them. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, uh, sports, you know, that's, I don't know, that's not my thing. It's not my thing really either. But let me tell you this. It's that type of unassured hope that so many rely and subsist on today. Blinded by vain hope in what we ourselves may or may not achieve or gain in this life, or blinded by the promise of what others may or may not provide for us, making this our vain hope as well. Vanities of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Ecclesiastes 1, 2. But as believers, we have something greater than the vain hopes of this world. 
And it's Paul's prayer that Christians would deeply know that inwardly. Because when we seek to deeply accept and understand our hope to be in the calling of God, His promise of eternal glory in the future becomes our unfailing peace and assurance for today. And that is anything but vain. Friends, lean heavily upon the sovereign assurance that God has given to you in Christ. What is there that you would suffer today, Christian, that weighs too heavy against the glory that we will encounter one great day when you and I gather with all the saints at the feet of Christ rejoicing in our redemption? When we count the cost of following Jesus, who among you would say the hope we have in God's calling was not worth every bit of loss or suffering in this life when we stand fully sanctified and eternally satisfied before Him? I wouldn't say that. And I would venture to guess that none of you who also belong to Him would say that either. And if it's worth it, then let me just say this. Rejoice! Rejoice! And let that hope be the mark of your God-driven perseverance in Christ. Stand with Paul and all the saints who knew full well what the hope of God's calling was in their lives. Just as Paul proclaimed at Romans 5, 1-2. He says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. I assure you, there is no other hope that you may know that's anything like it. And with that, I pray alongside Paul that you would know the hope of his calling. Now the next thing Paul prays the believers would know is also in verse 18. And that is, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, when I read this today, and and possibly Pastor Mark and I are Paul Washer on the brain, I guess. Because he talked about Paul Washer today as well, too. But I think about something that Paul Washer said in his preaching, and I actually think it was in the G3 conference in 2021. But he said this, There is no such thing as a great man of God. Only weak, pitiful, faithless men of a great and merciful God. Weak, pitiful, Faithless men and women. That's God's inheritance in us who are among the saints that belong to Him? How could such a rabble contribute to the riches of His glory? I believe Warren Wearsby provides a good insight when he writes this. Quote, God deals with us on the basis of our future, not our past. He said to cowardly Gideon, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Judges 6.12 Jesus said to Andrew's brother, Thou art Simon, thou shalt be called Cephas, a rock. 
John 1.42. Gideon did become a mighty man of valor. And Simon did become Peter a rock. We Christians live in the future tense. Our lives controlled by what we shall be when Christ returns. Because we are God's inheritance, we live to please and glorify Him. And when He returns, we shall be to the praise of the glory of His grace, the riches of His inheritance. Ephesians 1, 6 and 18. It's a humbling thing to recognize how weak, pitiful, and faithless we truly are before God. It's even more humbling to know that He would invest the life of His perfectly righteous Son in willing, torturous sacrifice on the behalf of us who are weak, pitiful, and faithless. That we would become a rich, glorifying inheritance to Him as counted among the saints. To know this in a manner that only God Himself can reveal to our hearts should not serve to draw us into any sort of pride as if we had any reason to boast in anything that would earn us such merit being so desperately poor in spirit. But instead, such blessed understanding and insight, it should draw us to a deeper and even more profound gratitude, a deeper and more profound devotion and love for God, a love for the God that we are called to glorify for the mercy and grace that has made us His. Christian, do you know what you are to God in Christ? I pray along with Paul that you would know the riches of his inheritance in the saints. That would include you. Now the last thing Paul prays for the believers to know in our passage, starting in verse 19, is this. Is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of His strength. There are four Greek words here. Denimus. It means power from which we get the word dynamite. And yurgia, working, from which we get the word energy. Kratos, another Greek word that relays the same sense of might and strength. And iskus, another Greek word in this verse that relays again the sense of strength and power. Four distinct Greek terms Paul uses here, closely knitted together in this one verse to amplify the sense of the surpassing greatness of God's power toward those who belong to Him in Christ. However, so intent is Paul in making the point of how great this power is that he doesn't stop with this fourfold term, emphasis. But he goes even further in verses 20 to 23 by revealing it as the same power 
that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And Christ, being in that position, is seated far above all rule and authority. There is no greater name. His is the name above all names. Philippians 2.9 There is no greater power. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Him. Matthew 28.18 There is no greater dominion. For in Him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Colossians 1.16 All things are subject to Him and under His feet. You make Him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Psalms 8.6 And in such supreme authority Christ was given as head of the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3.19 And when we compare with the power of God that has raised Christ from the dead and has positioned Him in the heavenlies in all authority with what Paul later writes in this same letter, we begin to see even more clearly how that power is made available to those who are His. Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love, which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the eternal perspective that Paul uses to illustrate his point then, where Christ is today, so are we in Him. Again, where's he has some comments. He says, quote, This means that we share His resurrection, His ascension, and exaltation, we too are seated in the heavenlies and all things are under our feet as we are in union with Him. No wonder Paul wants, wants us to know the exceeding greatness of His power toward us. Apart from this power, we cannot draw on our great wealth in Christ. power of God made accessible to those in Christ is far greater than any trial, far greater than any temptation, far greater than any power or principality that would come against you. That's what is behind Paul's words when we would understand by means of enlightened hearts that have received Christ in salvation. 
that not only has God saved us in Christ, but through Christ, He has empowered us. Empowered us to face every trial. Empowered us to overcome every temptation. Empowered us to make all sacrifice for Him and for others in the hope we have in His calling. Empowered us all who are in Christ, all to the praise of His glory. But why don't we access that power? I'll tell you why. Because we are so blinded by our weakness instead of embracing it with the knowledge that God's power is perfected in our weakness. That's why Paul states to the believers in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 12.10, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If weakness in and of itself were a sin, then Paul could not have been content with being weak. Weakness implies a need for dependency on someone or something where the sin emerges when we begin to depend on something other than God and what He has provided to us in Christ. And what He has provided for us is the very power that rose Christ from the dead and seated Him alongside the Father with authority over all things. Never Never will there be a time in our lives today or in eternal glory that those in Christ will not be dependent upon Him. And in that manner, we will always be weak. Please. Please, tell me, what trial in your life contains the power to overcome the power found in Christ who is authority over all things? Please tell me. I would wager that no matter how big or how small that there is not one thing in your life. Trial, temptation, power or principality that is coming against you. Not one thing that can overcome the power of Christ in you. And if none, and I'm telling you right now, there is none, then I urge you, I exhort you to cry out to God in your time of need, fully content in your weakness, and dependent on the power that He supplies to you. Because in His love for us who are His, we are more than conquerors. Again, I say this. None of what I've preached about is available to you if you're not in Christ. You will struggle. You may have some successes. 
You may gain the world, but you will lose your soul if you don't have faith in Christ, if you don't belong to Christ, if you don't know Christ. Christians, do you know the surpassing greatness of the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him with all authority? Do you know the hope of His calling and the riches of His inheritance among the saints? I pray that every single one of us here tonight, by God's sovereign grace, would know. Let's pray. Father, I thank You, God, for this this time. And Lord, I pray that what has been preached and taught and proclaimed from this pulpit, Father, does not come back void. I pray that hearts are shaped and molded according to Your Word, Father. Lord, I pray that there are those that might be here tonight, Father, that don't know You or online that may be watching, Father, as well too. God, I pray that first and foremost that they would know You because they can't know anything else in You apart from knowing Christ. And Father, I thank You again for all that You are doing in this, in, this, in this place, God, amongst these people that is Grace Harvest Baptist Church. Father, I thank You. And I lift it all up to You, to Your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.